The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's scripture is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, and this is found on page 811 if you're using the Black Bibles in front of you. If you would stand as I read God's word. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me, sorry, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You may be seated. Well, you want to uh, keep your copy of Scripture open to Luke chapter 7 here, these verses 36 through 50. We are going to continue our worship this morning. We've worshiped Jesus through the singing of songs, and now we're going to worship Jesus through the preaching of his word. Our sermon title this morning is simply going to be called this, The Heart of Salvation, The Essence of Salvation. What is at the center of salvation? Remember what we've said, this little micro section in Luke's gospel, chapter 7 and chapter 8, Luke, the gospel writer, is zooming in on this idea of salvation that can only be found in Jesus, the Spirit-anointed Savior that we saw way back in the Nazareth synagogue when he opened up the scroll of Isaiah and read that prophecy and said, these things are true about me. Now Luke is leading us like a good friend to be certain of the things we know concerning the gospel, and he is now showing us what it looks like to know Jesus as Savior and the fine salvation that we desperately need in him and him alone. And here we 
have come to this sort of pinnacle, this, this climax example, the heart of salvation. If you want to take these verses, 36 through 50, and summarize them in a sentence, it would come down to this. Sinners are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Sinners are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. This is what we see in this person that we simply know as the woman, a notorious sinner. But Jesus and his interaction with her and her exuberant love that she shows to Jesus, she is showing us something that lies at the very heart, the very bullseye, the very center of salvation. It is this, sinners can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question before I hit pause and pray here for our time this morning, and it comes out of a verse that we read this morning before service, and we are praying for those of us serving, and we're praying for everyone, and it is this verse. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Thessalonica this. He says, He who calls you is faithful. He who calls you is faithful, talking about God. And then he gives this promise. He will surely do it. Can I ask you this question? What are you expecting God to do right now for the next 40 to 45 minutes? What are you expecting God to do? If Jesus in the flesh were to walk through the door, sit down in front of you and look you in the face and say these words to you, what do you want me to do for you for the next 45 minutes? How would you answer that question? The danger of gathering on a Sunday morning from Sunday morning from Sunday morning is this. We drift in and we drift out and we expect absolutely nothing to happen. We don't expect to meet from Je with Jesus. We don't expect to hear from Jesus. We don't expect the Holy Spirit to fall. We don't expect the Word of God to pierce our hearts. We don't expect to change. We don't expect others to change. We don't expect the dead to be raised to newness of life. We don't expect a thing from Jesus. And you know the phrase, if you aim at nothing, you will hit it, what? Every single time. My encouragement is this. Go against what you normally might do on a Sunday morning. If you drift in and you drift out expecting absolutely nothing to happen, maybe today Jesus is speaking to you through my words right now, challenging you this. Jesus, if it is true, he who calls you is faithful and the promise is you will surely do it. My encouragement is as we go to the Lord in prayer right now, ask him to do something in you. Ask him to open your eyes to see the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him to move in such a way where you remember the day of your salvation and to restore to you the joy of your salvation. Ask him to do it. The promise is he's going to do it. And then we get the joy of watching Jesus do a good, awesome, gracious, merciful work that only he can do. Thus, he gets the glory and we leave changed and then we get to invite people in to come and know the same. Amen? So right now, my encouragement is don't take a 15, 30-second nap. Go to the Lord in prayer. Let's join our voices together and community-wise lift them to Jesus, asking him to do what only he can do as we turn to this text in Luke chapter 7. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're here to see you glorified. We want the Lord Jesus Christ to be the center of everything. And the promise that we have is the helper, 
the paraclete, the Spirit himself, loves to set the spotlight on Jesus Christ himself. So Lord, we pray, would you come? Would you hear our prayers right now? Lord Jesus, would you do this in me? Lord Jesus, would you do this in those around me? Lord Jesus, would you do this in the lives of my neighbors or in the lives of my coworkers? Would you do this? And Jesus, you have to know we are banking on the promise that you, the faithful one, will, will, will do it. Convince us, convict us in our hearts of our desperate need for a sovereign awesome king such as yourself lord jesus use me as an instrument in your hand holy spirit i'm asking that you would empower the words coming out of my mouth so that they would land on us with great weight and great conviction so that you might receive the glory you're worthy to receive it is in the name of king jesus i pray these things amen I want you to do this. Picture this in your mind. If you can get this picture in your mind and set it on the forefront of your mind, then you are setting yourself up well to know exactly the kind of conflict, the kind of tension that sits before us right now in Luke chapter 7. It is this. You're a fresh high school graduate. So go back in your mind's eye, or maybe if you're still in school and you haven't graduated, flash forward to this idea that you've just graduated high school, and now what is your next step? Your next step is I'm going to go off to college. So off you go to college. You're going to go earn a degree, but you can't pay for this degree. So what do you do? You do what everyone else does. You go and you begin to borrow money. Now, thankfully, what you discover is that you love your field of study, and you love it so much that you decide to go and further your education. You're going to go get a master's degree, and then you're going to go on and get a PhD. But again, like many, you don't have the money. So what do you do? You go and borrow more money. That's right. Along the way, you get married. That costs money. You buy a house. That costs more money. You begin to have children. That costs more money. All events which take you right back to the bank to borrow more, borrow more, borrow more, and in the end... You're in debt to the tune of $300,000, let's say. Okay, now imagine a totally different scenario. One where you need a new pair of shoes for a job interview. You want to look sharp. You want to look good. You want to know, you want people to know that you actually uh, know what you're doing. And so you're going to try to not dress like a slob. You're going to actually try to dress like someone who has their act together or maybe you're going to go on to the first day on the job. You need a new pair of work boots, and so you want quality, obviously, because nice footwear matters. And you go to the store and discover that if I want a new pair of shoes, if I want a new pair of work boots, it's going to cost me $300 for a nice, nice, nice pair of shoes, a nice pair of boots. But it's obvious that you don't have that kind of money because, after all, you're just now starting your job, right? So you don't have mountains of cash, and so you need that $300 that you don't have, and so what you do is you go and you borrow that amount. Now, imagine that in either scenario, the $300,000 scenario or the $300 scenario, due to circumstances beyond your control, life happens to you, and it comes about that it is obvious that you cannot pay back what you owe. $300,000, $300,000. You can't do it. You have no physical way to pay that money back. 
So you head to the bank. You know you're in debt. You know you need to owe this money, and you know you need to pay it back. But before you can even get a word in with the bank manager, before you can even say anything and words cross your lips to the money lender at your local bank, in a moment that catches you by pure and absolute surprise, your money lender looks at you and graciously says, debt gone, canceled. Just like that straight up wipes away your debt as clean as clean can be. He freely forgives every penny you owe. The question is this, in which scenario will you love the moneylender more? If you owed 300, would you love him more? Or if you owed 300,000, would you love him more? You see, it's this tension, it's this conflict that roots itself in this question that lies at the very center of our text this morning as Jesus takes us to the very heart of salvation by asking this exact same question to a man we're going to see who is known as Simon the Pharisee. If you remember the last time we were in Luke, we learned that the reason so many people reject Jesus The reason why so many people hear about salvation in Jesus, life in Jesus, how the very longing of our souls were created to find satisfaction in Jesus Christ, Savior, Lord, King. They hear about this. They know it. They might even study it, but they come to the place where they say, I flat out reject it. I want nothing to do with this Jesus. We learn the reason why so many people draw this conclusion comes down to an unwillingness to repent of their sin. They do not want Jesus because they do not want to repent. What we're going to see is that now before us, Luke takes us to a real life example of the truth we saw last time in this interaction with Simon the Pharisee. We're going to see this rejection echoed in the thoughts and actions of Simon, but in sharp contrast to Simon stands this woman. The one we just simply know as the woman who was a a notorious sinner. We don't know what her sin was, but what we know is everyone knew of her. Everyone knew she was not right with God and everyone wanted nothing to do with her as a result. And Luke's invitation with this interaction between Jesus, the woman, and Simon is for all to come and see how the peace that the woman found, how the love the woman displayed, and how the grace that the woman received point like a giant flashing neon arrow to the truth that all sinners, all sinners, all stripes, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how sinful they might be, can come and find and their sins forgiven by faith in Jesus alone. Amen? That is what's going on in our text this morning. So where does Luke begin? How does he ease us into this truth to wrestle with the heart of salvation that sinners can be saved by grace through Jesus alone? Well, he does this by first turning us to the woman's lavish love. He turns us to the woman's lavish love. That's what's going on in verses 36, 37, and 38. Notice what our brother in Christ, Luke, wrote concerning this this event in the life of Jesus. 
Look in your Bible, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. So Jesus gets an invitation to a party. And Jesus went, accepted the invitation, goes into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Luke is telling us that Jesus was invited to a house, invited to a party. Jesus accepts the invitation, and he goes to this man's house, who in a couple of verses we're going to learn his name is Simon. But while Jesus was eating at the table, we are told that this woman of the city, who was publicly known as a notorious sinner, had learned where Jesus was and comes and shows up at the party. Now, for many of us, that scenario alone is starting to break you out into the cold sweats. You throw the party and you're just like, Lord, I hope no one else shows up to this thing that I did not invite because the only people who are supposed to be here are the only people that I told could come and have permission to be here. For many of us, we would never think of doing this, showing up to a party uninvited because it is extremely rude in our culture and it is horribly awkward in our culture to show up to a place that you were not invited to. But what you need to know is this. In Jesus' day, that social taboo did not exist. It would have been entirely acceptable practice for people not invited to the party to enter into the house to stand on the fringes of all the conversations and the goings-on and the food table and all these things and to listen in on conversations. It was sort of this, why wait until the morning newspaper to hear all the gossip if you could just show up at the party and hear it while it's being talked about? It was the social gathering places, and it was common practice. I'm throwing a party. The people who were invited are going to be at the table, but it's no skin off my back or yours. If you want to come in, drift through the door, stand on the sides, hear the conversations, people are more than welcome to do so. But notice this. In spite of such normal freedom, we get the sense that when the woman of the city who was the notorious sinner comes strolling in through the door, that teeth were clenching, nerves were fraying as she enters the house, stands behind Jesus at his feet weeping while holding in her hand a bottle of perfume. You see, these social norms may have been acceptable, but it was not acceptable for someone like this woman. If looks could kill, this party would have been a crime scene as those in attendance were sitting in silent judgment, casting daggers with their eyes at the woman who was not supposed to be in this place. But notice that nothing, absolutely nothing, is going to stop the woman as her love for her Savior is driving her actions to go to Jesus and out pour exuberant love upon the one who has saved her. Notice this, that hers is a lavish love. Hers is a lavish love. In her hand is an alabaster jar of perfume and a special ointment. This is no cheapo junior high axe can of body spray in her hand, all right? 
Junior high boys, if they did today what I do then, you don't wash your gym clothes in high school. You just basically give it an Axe body spray bath each time you go in, right? It was an awful putrid funk of stinky sweat and like fragrant perfume. I don't know what it was. It was a really weird way to live. Uh, this is no cheap Walmart knockoff perfume in her hand. Yeah, a couple bucks. Slap it on. So what she's carrying in her hand is most likely the family heirloom. Don't know how she has it, but she does have it. It's alabaster. It's a special flask. It's high-octane special perfume to be used that one time. You're going to crack open the top, you're going to pour it out, and then it's done. This is what she brings in her hands. She has tasted, listen, she has tasted and seen her Savior's great salvation. Thus, her love is super abundant right now in this moment. This is no puny love from the woman. This is no cheap love on the part of the woman. There's no stingy love to be found on her part. If her life were an ice cream sundae, Jesus is no cherry on top as the convenient addition to her life where she's saying, I'm keeping everything the same and I'm just going to slap a little Jesus on top. No, Jesus has come in and thrown out the Sunday. She's got a whole new meal in front of her. She has tasted and she has seen that salvation in Christ alone is supreme and what it pulls out of her is super abundant, lavish, exuberant love on her part to her Lord, to her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice hers is also an unrestrained kind of love. It's an unrestrained love. The social taboos. If you're reading this and going, that, that's a little weird. She's falling down at the dude's feet. She's crying all over him. She's undoing her hair, a very not normal thing to do then. She's wiping his now, tear-stained, muddy, dirty, crusty, probably stinky feet with her hair. And then she starts kissing those same feet and pouring out this perfume all over her feet. What she's doing in this moment is such an obvious display of love that the love she has received from Christ in the forgiveness of her sins, it's like it's reaching down in her and what it's pouring out is an overriding fear of man that is compelling her to say this, I know folk here are probably getting their knickers in a twist because I'm here. They're probably getting bent out of shape because I'm weeping at his feet. I'm sure they're getting wrapped around the axle at my exuberant, lavish outpouring of love, but I don't care because Jesus has saved my soul. And there is going to be no restraint on my soul in the outpouring of my love for this Savior. It's obvious that her love is seen so clearly in her actions. Her actions clearly reveal where her affections lie. As she wets feet, wipes them with their hair, kisses feet, and anoints them, no one is sitting around the table saying, you know what, I just can't really tell. Does she love Jesus? No one's, no one's questioning this. 
No one's saying, I just can't tell. Maybe she needs to ramp up her actions a little bit more, and then I might be convinced just a little bit that she loves Jesus. No, her actions are obvious to anyone with eyes. This woman has tasted and seen salvation, and her actions are speaking. No words required. People can look and tell your affections have been captured by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is flowing out of you to no one's, to no one's guessing. It is obvious to all what is going on. See, it's obvious that these tears gushing out of her face are no tears of sadness. These are no tears of pain. These aren't tears of loss. These aren't tears of disappointment. No, these are tears of thankfulness. These are tears of freedom. These are tears of joy and tears of overwhelming adoration. For in Jesus Christ, the woman has discovered the bondage-breaking freedom of God's forgiveness. Do you remember the moment you first believed Can you go on back in your mind's eye to when Jesus saved your soul and tears were gushing from your face? You were overwhelmed with joy and thankfulness as grace and mercy from your Savior washed over your soul. And in that moment, you were a gushing pile of tears because you've been saved. You've been redeemed. You've been plucked from the dungeon of sin. You went from darkness to light. You went from blindness to sight. You went from death to resurrected life. And you didn't sit and go... Thanks, Jesus. You didn't do that. Can I? Yeah? Did anyone do that when you got saved? Stifle a yawn and sort of barely mutter a thank you, Jesus? Or were you crushed to the dust? As your Lord and your Savior who is gentle and lowly saved your soul and it unzipped you and undid you and what came out of you was this woman-esque kind of love. Does anyone here remember this? Can you testify to that right now? Yeah? You see, the tears in the woman's face and the kisses from her lips and the perfume from her alabaster flask, they all add up to one conclusion. This woman loves Jesus much. But notice that in stark, night and day contrast to her lavish love stands Simon and his lack of love. And that's point number two. You see Simon's lack of love. That's what's going on in verses 39 through 46. It is a pure and absolute lack of love. And as we will see here shortly, Simon's lack of love that is here before us in his interactions with Jesus, Simon's lack of love says something about him that he is unwilling to see. It says something about him that he's unwilling to admit. There's more going on in Simon's heart than the external lack of love. His lack of love to Jesus is exposing something in his heart just like the woman's lavish love is exposing something in her heart. Do you see what's going on here? Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, what did he see? He saw this lavish love being poured out on part of the woman to Jesus. He, Simon, said to himself, so he's muttering these things in his own heart. He's muttering these things in his own mind. He says this, listen, self, if this man, Jesus, were the prophet that everyone's saying that he is, here's what he would have known. He would have known who? 
And he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. That's Simon's reaction to all of this. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 7, Luke's gospel, chapter 7, you remember this, Chance preached this for us, where Jesus raised a widow's son from the dead. Do you guys remember that? Luke told us in that exchange between Jesus talking to the widow, Jesus comes before her son who is dead before him, and Jesus looks to this young man who was dead, and he says to this young man, Arise! And Luke records that the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying this, A great prophet has arisen among us. Now flash forward to this party in Simon's house around the table where he is trying to wrestle with and draw this conclusion. If Jesus were a, same word, prophet. It seems Simon, in this moment, may have been prepared to give Jesus a fair shake. Maybe he's this prophet guy everyone keeps talking about. I don't know. I'm hearing rumors that maybe Jesus is this one. Everyone keeps spreading the news about, but as the lavish love of the woman is sitting there unraveling his party right before his eyes, Luke tells us in verse 39 that Simon begins to just take it all in, and then he begins to mutter to himself in his heart and in his mind, you know what, if this man, if Jesus were the prophet that everyone says he is, he would know who this woman is, he would know what she has done, and Jesus wouldn't be having nothing to do with her. After all, she is a sinner. In other words, I know what people are saying about Jesus. But there's no way what they're saying about Jesus can be true. Why, Simon? Why are you drawing this conclusion? Well, Simon would say, as a very religious man, and as a very righteous man who's in charge of some very religious things at the church, and I have a Bible in my house, and I like to pray every single, single day, I know for sure that Jesus cannot be a prophet because, after all, if he were a religious man like me and a righteous man like me, who is, by the way, definitely not a sinner like this woman right here, I would never allow her to touch me. Do you see where he's going? And if I would never allow her to touch me, Jesus would never be allowing her to touch him. Therefore, if Jesus really is who he claims to be, then he would be a little bit more like me. And he wouldn't be doing all these ridiculous things with sinners. He wouldn't be allowing this to happen. But since it is obvious that Jesus doesn't care who she is touching or what she is touching... Jesus is failing to live up to my self-made standards, then I reject Jesus, therefore, and I want nothing to do with him, not too dissimilar to today, yeah? A lot of people in the world who are willing to give Jesus a fair shake, willing to listen to you about Jesus, willing to listen to the truths of the gospel of Jesus, willing to come to church and sing songs about Jesus, willing to listen to you pray for them in the name of Jesus. They're okay with Jesus, but for whatever reasons, they build up these preconceived notions of who they believe Jesus should be and how Jesus should act, not according to the scriptures, not according to what we know to be true about Christ, and they foist it on Jesus and say, well, if I were Jesus in that moment, I would not allow this to happen. Then Jesus comes in a lot of glory moments and completely upends our preconceived notions of who he is and we have a choice in that moment to make 
We're either going to say, Jesus, I sit in judgment of you. You're not living up to my expectations, so I reject you. Or we're going to allow ourselves to be undone and remade in the image of Christ, allowing him to show us who he is instead of us saying, I demand you act like this, Jesus. But a lot of people are unwilling to do that. And so they flat out reject Jesus just like Simon does. But notice that what Simon denies. What is Simon denying? I see Jesus. Everyone says he's a prophet. He cannot be this prophet. What Simon is denying, Jesus turns in a moment and actually proves. Do you see this in the text? Jesus proves that he is a prophet, not only by making it clear that he knows what kind of sinner the woman is, but he makes it clear that he is a prophet by knowing what kind of man Simon is, by reading the very thoughts in the heart of his mind. Discerning the thought of Simon's heart, verse 40, look at what Luke writes. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And I don't know how Simon answered this, but he answers back, say it, teacher. Part of me just wants to wonder if he was like, go ahead and say it, teacher. Like when you're at home and you're daydreaming and you're, does anyone else do this? You role play conversations you wish you would have had or you would like to have in your own mind and you're playing both parts of the conversation. You're going back and forth and you're thinking it out and it's just obvious like something's going on and then someone comes along and says, hey, stop thinking like that. And you're like, Whoa! like it catches you off guard because they know exactly what you're doing in that moment. I'm telling you, Simon probably has got a little bit of that going on right now. He's just sitting here staring at the whole thing, thinking these things in his heart and Jesus says, hey, Simon, I want to say something to you and he's like, like, okay, okay say, say it, teacher. What are, you going to, what are you going to say? And then Jesus drops on him this mini parable. He got a certain money lender who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. A denarii, a denarius, that's one day's wage. If you worked one day, you got one coin. A denarius, if you worked two days, you got two. Sorry, this is 500 days' wages. The other person owed 50 denarii, so he's worked 50 days. When, Jesus says, they could not pay back what they owed, the moneylender canceled the debt of both. Simon, simple question for you. Which of them will love the lender more? You can almost hear the pride, smug, self-righteousness is Simon answered well I suppose you see that there I suppose the one who canceled the larger debt don't bother me with such simple questions Jesus I know you're trying to bait me into a corner here I suppose the right answer you want out of my mouth is this uh, the one who canceled the larger debt Jesus in grace and kindness looks at him and says Simon you you've judged rightly you've judged rightly then in an instant, Jesus turns and applies the parable to Simon's life. He applies the parable to the life of the sinful woman. Simon, what you need to remember is this. It was your house that I entered. I'm on your turf. But as I entered your house, there was no water for my feet. There was no kiss of greeting from you. There was no oil for my head, but the sinful woman has provided in super abundance at every point where you have failed. She has been showering me with uninhibited love. The question I have for you is this, Simon, why? Why? 
Why such contrast between your actions, Simon, and her actions? Why, Simon, is there such disparity between her lavish love and your utter lack of love? Here's the answer, because while you might be able to talk about faith, Simon, while you might be able to write books of theology about faith, Simon, and while you might be able to point to Bible verses about faith, hers is a genuine experience of saving faith, and that is what you see in the last part of this interaction in point number three, you see a picture of genuine saving faith. And that, Simon, says Jesus, is the absolute crucial difference between your lack of love and her exuberant display of lavish love. Verse 47 is the key, saints. Verse 47 is the key. And verse 47 is the key because it explains the woman's actions. Do you see it there in your copy of Scripture? What does Luke write for us? He says this, continuing Jesus' words, Therefore I tell you, the you is Simon. Therefore I tell you, Simon. Listen. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little to no one's surprise, loves little. As observed by her actions, as displayed in her extravagant show of love, these things reveal something true about the woman. They reveal that her sins have been forgiven. That is why she's at the feet of Jesus. That is why she is pouring out a lavish love upon Jesus. Listen, it's important to understand what Jesus is saying here in verse 47. You can get it twisted and you can get it backwards, but we must not get it backwards. It's important to understand that when Jesus says to Simon, pointing to the woman, he says, her sins are many. But her sins are forgiven, for she loved much. What Jesus does not mean is this. He does not mean her great love has somehow earned the forgiveness of Jesus. But rather, the great forgiveness of her sins has resulted in her unashamed display of love. To put it in plain speech, she ain't there loving Jesus to get saved. She's there loving Jesus because she is saved. That's what's going on with that language there. When it says, are forgiven, that's this perfect past tense language. She has somehow heard Jesus preaching. She has somehow heard about the fact that as he's going around through all these cities, that salvation for her soul, peace with God, can be found in him. And she's come to believe. And she says, I'm on a mission. I need to go and pour out my love to the one who has saved my soul. And she is constrained and controlled and compelled by the love she was received and so she's here pouring out lavish adoration and worship upon Jesus. She grasps how big a sinner she is. She grasps the magnitude of forgiveness she's received from God and the genuine cancellation of her sin debt by a holy God is absolutely plain for all to see. My question is this, can the same thing be said about you today? Can the same thing be said about me today? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? When was the last time you told somebody, put me in the love Jesus camp? I'm not talking about, have you sang a song about love to Jesus? I'm not talking about hearing other people talking about love for Jesus. 
I'm talking from the depths of your heart. Have you ever told anyone, I don't know much, but I do know this. I love Jesus. And there ain't no shame in that game when I say that. I'm a lover of Jesus because Jesus has loved me. Do people know that you love Jesus? Remember the woman here? What's going on with the woman? Nobody's looking at her going, yeah, I don't know, man. I'm really conflicted here. I can't tell if she loves Jesus. She didn't have to say a single thing. Every piece of her actions before the crowd led to lover of Jesus, lover of Jesus, lover of Jesus, lover of Jesus. Friends, can people tell by your life? Can people tell by your actions? I am a man. I am a woman who loves Jesus. Do you love Jesus? If you want to smash Jesus' parable between the two debtors and bring it together to this idea, what you need to know is this. The woman who is a sinner, she's a 500 denarius sinner. Yeah? Simon is the 50 denarius sinner. So the reason why Simon loves Jesus so little is because he sees himself as a little sinner. Little sinners, they don't need a savior. I'm good being a 50 denarius sinner, says Simon. And people who see themselves as little sinners will have little love for a savior they have little need for. But it's 500 level sinners who know their need for a savior who come to Jesus by faith and find the forgiveness of sins they need. Are there any 500 level sinners here this morning? Like sign me up on that list. Like by grace, I have come to see from Jesus opening my eyes, I ain't no 50 denarius sinner. I'm a 500 level sinner. I have been moved from death to life. Can anyone say that this morning? Can anyone say, I once was blind, but now I see amazing grace has saved a wretch like me, like we sang this morning. Can anyone say that this morning? Then the question is, does your life reflect that love? Does your life show the woman-esque, lavish, unrestrained, uninhibited love to others where people say, I don't know much about Tom, but I do know this. He loves Jesus. I don't know much about Jonathan, but he loves Jesus. I see the way he opens his home, and he loves me like Jesus. I see the way that she talks to me during her lunch break, and it's obvious she loves Jesus. They didn't know me from anyone, but the Spirit moved, and I spoke a good word for Jesus in Walmart, and the person drew one conclusion. This person loves Jesus. They showed up at my bedside when I was sick because they love Jesus. My spouse cares for me because they love Jesus. My mommy and daddy do what they do in my life because they love Jesus. I go to church because I love Jesus. I go to community group because I love Jesus. I'm in a discipling group because I love Jesus. I open my mouth and share the gospel so that God, disciples can be made because I love Jesus. Is there anyone here who can sing with the woman, a 500 level sinner, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, 
Oh, my soul. You see, 500-level singers sing lyrics like that and mean it when they sing it. 50 denarius sinners might let those words cross their lips, but they don't mean it. You see, the world is filled with 50 denarius sinners, men and women who love Jesus very, very little. And perhaps you're here this morning as such a person. The question, listen, the question that 50 denarius sinners so often fail to ask is this question. Why is it I show so little love for Jesus? Why is it I show so little love for Jesus? Religious people can be 50 denarius sinners. Notorious sinners can be 50 denarius sinners. People who want to study the Bible can be 50 denarius sinners. People who might know verses in the Bible can be 50 denarius sinners. People who show up on a Sunday can be 50 denarius sinners. But the evidence of the lack of love for Jesus in their life should prompt you to ask a question. Why is it in my life I show so little love for Jesus? Never considering that the answer just might be this. The reason why I show so little love for Jesus is because I have never truly, genuinely seen or faced up to the fact of how great a sinner I truly am. Simon loves little because he doesn't think he needs Jesus. Little sinners don't need a big Savior. Thus, there's little love in his life for a Savior he finds little need for. Friends, until we see this, until we see that we are the woman in the story, until we see that we are 500 level sinners, Until we see that I, I, not my neighbor, not the person in the pew, not my coworker, but the man in the mirror, the woman in the mirror, when I do this and I point at that person and recognize that person in the mirror is a great sinner in desperate need of a great savior. Until that happens in your life, your love for Jesus will be non-existent. It just is. And maybe... You're here this morning, and Jesus is kindly opening your eyes to see that my extreme lack of love for Jesus is because I have never come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus like this woman. Verse 48, Jesus gives her the deep-seated assurance, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, says Jesus in verse 50, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Her salvation has come through faith alone. Her salvation is resting on Jesus alone. Her salvation is on the basis of grace alone. And her salvation has resulted in peace with God. All this stirs those who are at the table with Jesus to say among themselves, Who is this? Who is this is going around forgiving people's sins? Who indeed? Who indeed? Friends, this is the question that lies at the heart of salvation. Who is this who even forgives sins? Do you have an answer to that question? 
That's what Luke wants you to do. Luke isn't writing this so we can waste a Sunday morning in November of 2022 and smash 45 minutes and just go home and just do, do nothing with it. He's writing this so you can wrestle with the question, who is this? Who's going around saving sins, doing what only God can do? There must be something about this one that ain't like everyone else that's come before or whoever come after. There is one and only one who can go around saving people and forgiving them from their sins. Listen, the invitation that Luke has extended to you and has extended to me is this. All who will come, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've seen, no matter what you have experienced in your life, is to come and see this. The invitation for 500 level sinners is to come and be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, would you do these things now? Words have been spoken. Thoughts have been communicated. And because your word is truth and there's no lie to it, the parable that you taught is this. Satan is trying like hell right now to pluck these gospel seeds from hearts and minds. He is trying like hell right now to make sure that these truths do not take fruit in the souls of men and women. By the power and authority that you have in heaven and on earth, King Jesus, I'm asking that you, the faithful one, would come and stop that you would do it. That you would bring it about that these truths sown into our souls would take deep root in our lives and we would leave here changed by the power of the Holy Spirit working these truths out in our lives. Lord Jesus, receive the glory and the honor as it was intended to be given. It's for your name I pray these things. Amen.